welcome to Season 3, Episode 5 of Things Fall Apart, our podcast at the Human Restoration Project. My name is Chris McNutt. I'm a teacher in Springfield, Ohio. On today's podcast, we're looking at the gradeless movement. There's a lot to be debated in the education system, but I'm hard-pressed to find a topic so steeped in research as this one. Whether it be motivation, willingness to learn, or even traditional test scores, not giving a grade shows improvement across the board. We summarized this research on our website, as well as on a previous podcast, which you can find in our show notes. Therefore, instead of diving too far into why the gradeless movement is needed, much of this podcast is about implementing it. But before that, let me give a quick shout out to Bill Ryder, Jenny Lucas, and Aaron Flanagan for being some of our Patreon supporters. We deeply appreciate you and your willingness to keep our resources, podcasts, writings, and more afloat. And if you haven't checked out our extensive progressive guides ranging from gradeless assessment to mindfulness, take a look on our website. That's all free. If you like what you see, consider donating on Patreon. Thank you. There's countless research articles, books, podcasts, psychologists, education experts, and more writing and studying the effects of grades. And every single time, whether it be 1850 or 2019, it seems to support the same two outcomes. One, grades diminish motivation and do little to actually provide feedback for students to improve. And two, if there is research that supports grades, it's saying that they improve standardized test scores, not necessarily motivating or improving student outcomes in the long run. I challenge you to find data that supports otherwise. I say that not out of spite for people that disagree with this, but because I'm genuinely curious if there is any. It seems to be one of those things that is really common sense when you start thinking about it. People have thought about this for a while. Even back in Dewey and Thorndike's time, you know, grades were intentionally brought into schools as a way to show student growth, a way to open up dialogue between teacher and student, but in practice they do the exact opposite. Essentially, grades are a shortcut that communicate pass or failure, with many students seeing anything under an A as a failure. And for those at the bottom who receive an F, they're pushed out of our schools. They're rank and filed to be the quote-unquote losers in the education system. But there's a lot of barriers to best practice, and going gradeless isn't just, yeah, I'm just going to stop giving grades. Many districts have gradebook requirements, whether that be simply giving someone a grade or even just requiring a grade per week. And therefore, many don't even attempt this. It seems impossible. I'm here with our guests to show that it actually is possible. There are educators throughout the world going gradeless, even in the most traditional systems. Of course, there are varying degrees of making this happen, but going as far as possible within one's own district for the benefit of their students is worthwhile. Make the Master is kind of like the larger project that I'm doing, and the book is part of it because it bears the similar title, Make Them Process It. And it's a little self-published book that I have. The main drive behind that book was I was having this really great experience with my students um, using writer's notebooks for writing instruction. It's really a place for a lot of informal writing, a lot of a place for students to make lots of mistakes with writing as they learn and grow without a lot of pressure for them to produce a grade. Because when I first started teaching writing instruction, basically all of my writing instruction would take place during the high stakes, big assessment type writing. So they're doing big essays and I'm putting all of my writing instruction in those times. So it's like, here's how you pre-write, here's how you draft, here's how you revise. And then on top of that, there's just, well, also we got to go over formatting and then we've got to go over like sentence level writing. So I'm just, I'm packing those 
assignments with just an intense amount of instruction, which is really unfair to my students. That I, and I learned that over time. And so I spread it out and spaced it out into a writer's notebook now. And I'm talking to a colleague of mine. I'm saying, like, look at all this stuff my students are doing. He's, he's kind of wowed by it, too. And he kept telling me, like, are you writing this down? Are you writing this down? And eventually I said, I should probably write this down. This is Jeffrey Frieden, who teaches English at Hillcrest High School in Corona, California, and founded Make Them Master It, an organization aimed at connecting teachers to innovate their practice through a podcast, book, and blogs. Make Them Master It? Long before I had that, that URL, I was dealing with, I think it was kind of born initially out of a lot of frustration, maybe even a little bit of anger. Uh, what I was noticing as I came into education in like the year 2005 was when No Child Left Behind was in full swing. Um, and there was in some places a bit of a panic with how we're supposed to respond to that as schools. Looking back on it, I'm not sure the administrations I was serving under at the time fully understood what was going on, but there was basically this just real push to have test scores going up. And then when it came time to look at why the test scores weren't going up, it pretty much all fell back on the teachers. Like, hey, teachers, come on, what's going on here? And I was watching the, uh, we were bearing the brunt of the responsibility and the students were starting to bear less and less of that responsibility. And that was kind of getting me a little frustrated. I'm, I'm now frustrated about other things when it comes to, you know, assessment and accountability. But for a time there, I said, this feels really unfair for the teachers. So I'm like, I got to, we got to get the students to do more of this, take more ownership. I mean, you've heard, that's a big um, term that's been going around the last few years is having students own their learning. So I wasn't using that term back then, but it's like, man, I got to get these guys to take more ownership for what's, what's really theirs and it's their learning. And so it's, that's kind of where that make them master it. Like they're, I'm the one who's doing all the learning here. I'm the one that's constantly reflecting. When are we going to get the students to do that? So I was trying to work that in as, as much as I could more and more over time, getting students to assess themselves, um, giving feedback to one another, um, not just relying on me and any kind of grade that comes down uh, from me or from their other teachers, but to get them to take more and more ownership for what it is that they're there to do instead of it all falling back on the teachers, uh, it needs to fall on them. And that sounds really nice. But again, it was a, it was a frustration place where I was trying to, I was actually trying to push the work back on them initially, but I've really grown since then. And, and now it's more of a challenge that I'm bringing to my students is like, all right, guys, how can you take more ownership for the learning? This has come up with many of our guests, but it seems like something most progressive educators share is the realization that what they're doing isn't worth it, and coming to terms with the fact that traditional education isn't just unsustainable due to how poorly it functions, but because it's ultimately soulless for the teacher, it no longer feels like you're doing what you signed up to do, which is obviously helping and mentoring kids. Instead, you're almost roboticized. You're discouraged to show any kind of true emotion, whether that be you know, not showing any emotion or putting on this like, like entertainer style moniker, or maybe you're just held to ridiculous accountability measures and standardized testing. Could you go into further, Jeff, on what this shift looked like for you? I was really, really close to quitting. I was really, really close to throwing in the towel because of how much, um, and really a lot of it came down to grading, uh, at the, at the time where I was just expecting, I, and a large, largely it was me being idealistic as a teacher, I was like thinking I could do it all. My teacher hero in my mind that I was aspiring to be, and I didn't even really know this at the time, it was like on later reflection, 
but he was a bachelor and he had nothing but time to give to giving feedback to his students and getting all this work back. And I had two kids at the time and was just trying to juggle that. And I say at the time, cause now I have four kids at home. So I also needed a solution. I needed just practically like if I'm going to do this next year um, and not feel immense guilt for not getting the work done or missing time with family, I need to figure out a way to get the students to do take more ownership of their learning because I won't survive. Right. I know going gradeless for me was empowering because you end up doing a lot less at home. I mean, obviously, it's not a replacement for giving feedback and we're still expected to work with kids. But I found myself spending way more energy at work guiding and mentoring and way less energy at home since if it's a project framework, I'm not really doing a lot of the planning. It's mostly the kids. How did you go about changing up your grading practice? By doing summative conferences at the end of a grading term and taking points off of assignments. So uh, it's been kind of a fun little joke to say in class where this class is totally pointless. But what I mean is I'm not, I'm, what I'm doing instead of just throwing points or a grade on there is I'm uh, giving students meaningful feedback and it's taking me probably just as much time as in the days when there were points to, to put some information on there for the students to get back. But what's different this time for me as the teacher, my experience is I'm, I'm telling them where they are, like here, here's where you are, here's what you're doing well, here's your next step as a learner in this particular skill that we're working on. And then for them, they get that back and they can, they're freed up to look at it. Now the points aren't making so much noise um, for them that they can focus on that feedback. And then they'll put together a, kind of like a portfolio. They're bringing their work to me and then they're talking me through their learning. And then at the end of that conversation, we negotiate what their grade is in the course. So that's a, they are taking ownership, but it is just as much work for me. And but now also more for them, they really have to think through how they're going to make their case for their grade. And the influx of social media and in general, the ability to find sources that supports gradeless learning make this a lot easier. I know early on in teaching, I was always very anxious about things I was doing. I tended to over plan. I always felt like students need to be accounted for. I had a ton of grades. It was really rote. And a lot of this was part of a, a savior complex, if you will, that a lot of teachers tend to feel. I wanted to be a teacher because I wanted to help others. So that teaching mythos, you know, it makes us feel like we're trying to save the world, that students need saved and we're superheroes almost. And I know that's not the mentality now that we should be framing education with. I'm curious about what connections you've made on your podcast writings and on social media that have affected your desire and willingness to shift towards gradeless learning. Oh yeah. There's been a major shift in that where I've also hit a point, too, in my own self-efficacy as a teacher where I don't need as many external voices or measures on me where I'm like relying on what other people think of me, my practice because I'm confident in what I'm doing. So that actually takes the stress out right there. But when you're a young teacher, that's not there yet because you're still figuring out who you are and you're having new experiences with students on a regular basis. Um, and so you're not sure how to interpret all that and how you handled it. So I've really just been reflecting on my own uh, practice over the years, and that's really helped too. And I, I never really struggled with a savior complex where I felt like I had to, to save the students. My struggle was, it's a really weird one. I don't know if I've ever stated this on online. I've talked to a few people about this before. But um, 
there was very, very early on, I think before I even taught my first class, um, so in my early 20s, I'm putting together my syllabus and I, I, I'm talking about that in some venue where there's like new, new teachers there and I say, you know, like, oh man, I'm struggling with how, what to put on my syllabus. And I don't even remember what the guy looks like, but there's somebody there that kind of dropped this thing. Well, make sure whatever you write on your syllabus can stand up in court. That's it. And for whatever reason, that really terrible advice like stuck with me. And um, the way I kind of describe it is every time. So I wrote in the syllabus and I tried to actually make it, you know, legally ironclad. And then every time I'm doing an assessment of my students work, putting points or a grade, there's kind of this thought in the back of my mind that I might have to give an account to it. So that it becomes this sort of um, Dickensian uh, specter that's behind me, like this hooded figure with a gavel, like just waiting to drop the hammer on me if I don't do something right or if I don't uh, provide the right kind of feedback. And the way that takes shape, um, or the way that it took shape for many, many years for me, if you're dealing with a like an analytical rubric that has, say, um, 24 to 36 boxes of like how a student could score on a piece of writing is all of my advice, all of my feedback was how students weren't getting the top mark. So it's like, here's how you missed. Um, and like you missed here, you missed there. Ooh, you really missed on that one. Or, and, and people rarely got the top scores on the categories. And so for me, it's like, I'm, I'm living in fear of this specter behind me, but I'm also just giving this advice to students about how they're not doing perfect. And, um, it's just kind of creating this, this bad feeling all around for everybody. And this year I decided that I'd had enough of that and I could actually name what was going on. So to find out how I could approach young teachers about that, having to move away from sort of that anxiety that's wrapped up in how we assess is kind of becoming my new uh, mission, I guess, is to connect people with, hey, it doesn't have to be the way that you think. It doesn't have to, to be this um, oppressive in a way. You know, I know a lot of this isn't very easy either. I, I know it's really hard to convince everyone that gradeless is the way to go. I mean, if you're brought up in the traditional system, saying that everything you're used to is really the wrong way to do things is a very much an uphill battle. What has been your experience in this regard? The, the scary part for me this year, and I still kind of wrestle with it a little bit, but now, now that we're most of the way through the year, I'm seeing that it works. But the scary part for me was how do I justify this to somebody who has questions? You know, if a parent or if an administrator has questions, um, which I've only dealt with a couple and they've been pretty softball questions. So I, I've been fortunate in that regard. I know some people have tried to go the route that I'm going and have been met with a lot of opposition uh, because the way that, that the word I'm going to use here is schema. I mean, everyone's schema about what schooling is and what you do at school. It doesn't quite fit what I'm doing in my classroom. I mean, it largely does. There's, you know, kids show up every day. They sit down in relatively assigned seats and um, I take role and I instruct and they do work. I mean, it looks very similar, but it's just kind of like how we get that sort of end result that we're all that, you know, I mean, more or less the students are there for that grade teaching high school. And this led us to a discussion of Jeff's platform, Make Them Master It, which is developed to connect teachers in a safe place to consider these progressive ideas. For him, it encourages practice in his own classroom because he knows that others are considering and doing the same things. 
for me, it's the same way. Human Restoration Project has allowed me to feel a lot more confident in the progressive ideals I try to hold up in my own classroom. Further, we as teachers can use our online platforms to bolster the why of using progressive ed showcasing our student work. Basically, there's a, a level of sort of submitting to this external measure, uh, a standardized test. And I, I would say if a school wanted to kind of go all in with this more student-centered approach, now with um, technology being relatively inexpensive and really fast internet, things like that, I feel like a school could just say, we're going to go all in on this. And instead of just like waiting for somebody else to tell us our results, how about we just show them? How about we, we put on our website here that we have, you know, video or we run a project that's all year long and we're just constantly updating and telling the community what we're doing here and showing what our really bright students are doing. And then when the test results come out, they can kind of decide for themselves when they look at, well, here, I got all this great stuff coming out from our school and we can see what our students are doing. And then we see these results that might actually cause some questioning. I'm just, you know, speculating. What if a school did that? I'm a huge proponent of this as well. I manage the website of our school and I make a point to upload the projects that we're doing, including our resources and promoting social media accounts of teachers who show off student work. And we emphasize student work, not teacher work. I really find it annoying when teachers take videos of, you know, quote unquote, engaging lessons. I'm not interested in someone's amazing techniques of control. I just want to see cool examples of what students are doing. And then I can use those ideas to propose new ideas to my kids. Next year, we're planning on having students actually all upload their work on our website and make their portfolios even public. What goals do you have for them? Make them master it when it comes to promoting your ideas. Well, my goals for the platform going forward, I, I do want to grow, um, get as many stories as I can of teachers um, at, at points where they really struggled in their career, but they they found a way through and and put that out there for other teachers. I want to connect more at Make Them Master It um, around the idea of these alternative ways to assess students and um, more ownership for the students and their learning. And as much as I can, kind of put that on my my website. And I, I'm at I'm toying with the idea of you know having other people come on the website too to just kind of share their story about how they have students um, take on the learning, or even like the the teacher side too. Of you know, it's really hard, but I push through, and and here's some encouragement for you too. So kind of opening it up a little bit for other teachers to to share their story, but really to just kind of keep growing. Then that concept of getting students to own the learning and for teachers to sort of unburden teachers from the stresses of teaching as much as possible in an encouraging way. I've seen some stuff out there that's, that's the same kind of goal, but it's more of a de-stressor or event. And I don't want that to take place on my website necessarily. I mean, we do need to vent. We do need to have time where we process stuff um, with people that we trust. Um, but I also just really want to be an encouragement to really to learners and to teachers right there and just kind of build on that as much as I can. So I don't know if there's, uh, I do know there's other books in me. I got some books kind of in there that are going to come out eventually and I'll continue to self-publish. So in the same vein, what advice do you have for teachers who may want to share their voice? I encourage everyone to make their voice heard because I mean, it's changed my teaching life. It seems like there's like when I entered the profession long before there was the proliferation of social media, there was a way, like a process you went through, an established process that you went through to be considered like a, a leader or some, somebody who could raise a platform and have a voice. But now with social media, it's more of like who's listening. 
And so there, it's a very different route where anyone, anyone can build a platform. And if the ideas are resonating, then some people can kind of flock there and they'll go there and it gets shared around. And it, it's not this established way. Like I don't necessarily need to get a PhD or an EDD to be heard. I can invite, almost invite people into my classroom with my platform and say like, hey, this is what's going on in here. And if the ideas resonate, people kind of hover around that. And then over time, they, I'm, it's, there's no actual process of this. No one's handing me a diploma and saying you're an expert. But at a certain point, it's, I'm being treated like I'm one. And uh, my, me and my colleagues have been teaching for about the same amount of time, about 13 to 15 years, who are in the process of building a platform are noticing these things too. That, huh, people are, they're taking me just as seriously as they would, you know, this um, traditionally published author over here. It's been a fascinating kind of concept to think through that there's different routes now to, there's alternative routes to this expertise and this platform building. Exactly. And as a soft promo, I'm always willing to share the Human Restoration Project with you. If anyone listening has a story to tell, advice to give, or anything surrounding progressive education, I'll help promote you. We'll coach you through setting up some basic account stuff if you're not familiar, and really offer just to promote your message for free. Just send us a DM on Twitter, or you can reach me by email at chris, C-H-R-I-S, at humanrestorationproject.org. my opinion, it's valuing the student where he or she is. It's uh, recognizing the individual's strengths and weaknesses and challenging them beyond where he or she is currently at. Grading in and of itself is, um, is comparative. It's either norm reference or criterion reference. And either way, when we're doing that, um, we are, we're, we're saying that the student should be here. And not all students should be somewhere. Um, they should be exactly where they are, and we should be challenging beyond where they Here's Aaron Blackwelder, an English educator in Woodland Public Schools in Woodland, Washington, and founder of the organization Teachers Going Gradeless, which connects educators and provides a crazy amount of resources concerning gradeless education. Aaron references The End of Average by Todd Rose. Throughout history, we have made these attempts to average or... Um, you know, quantify things and, and place a, a, the ideal around something. And one of the biggest uh, comparisons he uses is jet fighters and that um, pilots were, you know, were, were, we weren't very successful when we had these average built cockpits. But as soon as they started developing the cockpit to be adjustable to the, the pilot, then we've been able to get pilots of all sizes, shapes, genders, uh, into the into the cockpit, and we've then been, you know, we've we've uh, had the greatest air force uh, ever since. Now, I'm not promoting the air force or war or anything like that, but what I'm saying is, uh, the idea is that has been transitioned to our automobiles and made us better drivers and, and more comfortable in our cars. And he goes on to talk about education and that um, when we start looking at different aspects of learning and learning styles and learning abilities, gearing towards that mindset, then we open up possibilities that can basically challenge each person and, and you know, develop ideas that, that would never be developed if we didn't open up those opportunities. So yeah, that's, to me, gradeless learning is about acknowledging the learner where 
where that learner is and exploring his or her potential rather than the potential somebody else thinks that they should be at. For sure. And it benefits the teacher just as much as the student. I find myself much more relaxed and less stressed when I'm not expected to put a number in for every student every single day or every single week. Sometimes I'm expected to summarize a grade for eligibility or state requirements, but mostly I spend most of my time giving feedback in class or through something more student-centric. And I think that some might look, though, at gradeless learning and say, you know, specifically I'm referencing your progress report, which I'll link in the show notes. If you're not familiar, it's a sheet of paper that lists a bunch of learning objectives with some banked-in remarks, and then there's a, a summative section at the bottom for growth and what someone's doing well. For some, they might look at that and go, man, that's a lot of work. How has gradeless learning affected your workload? In some aspects, I'm doing a lot less work than I've ever done before. I have to really think about what it is that I want to read and assess. So homework. Uh, I don't give homework. I haven't given homework in years. Um, however, uh, we do a lot of project-based and problem-based learning, and I'm looking at the work in progress constantly. And um, from those, from from that perspective, I'm doing a lot more in class, working with individual students, reading their work while over their shoulder, essentially, and uh, giving ongoing feedback. So by the time that it's done and turned in, I don't need to sit down with it and assess it. I've sat down with the students through the process and helped ensure by the time it's turned in, there's they're they're not having to get a grade from you or get the evaluation. I mean, they, they pretty much are confident where that work is by the time they send it in. Through the process, it's a lot more work, but in the uh, summative, really easy at that point. Um, as far as building that um, that progress report, yes, it does look pretty daunting, doesn't it? In, in all honesty, it takes me about four to five minutes to fill one out for each student. And that's being pretty generous with time. I can probably whip them out a little faster than that. Um, I actually use Google Forms. Um, I have um, two rubrics that I use uh, that are, one is based on the Common Core and what our learning targets are for that, for that standard. And um, for the one that you saw, it's based on uh, freshman first semester. It's all about learning to, um, to use text evidence support a claim. That's everything that we do the whole semester long. And um, the other rubric that we use is a uh, soft skills rubric. And um, those, both of those are uh, embedded into the teaching and the learning in the class. Um, and I find that the soft skills are far more important to talk about with students than the hard skills of the writing. And so I like it because a lot of those conversations um, I have with students, like, we do a lot of group collaborative work in my class, and um, I have this young, uh, one young lady who I've had multiple conversations with. Um, you know, she uh, started off the semester by complaining that she was the only one doing the work, and so I pointed it to our soft skills rubric. I said, "Well, let's look at um, let's look at this. Let's see. Are you with the collaboration? Are you acting as a leader, or are you taking?" this on yourself are you working are you being respectful by taking on the work or is it more respectful to challenge people and if they don't do the work let them fail and so it challenges students who are that um, that type a personality to look to step back and go hmm what i'm doing is unhealthy it's unhealthy for me and it's unhealthy for my group um so 
I really like those soft skills and reporting those. The one thing that I truly believe in is um, when I talk about these, um, I don't report the full rubric to the parents. I don't want parents to look at um, when I report, say, one item. Let's say it's a level three. I don't want them to see, oh, boy, they could be a level four. I just want them to acknowledge where the child is and just accept that. Because as soon as we start having conversations around, well, why is he a level three? We start having conversation around a grade. Why is my child a level three and around a level four? And I don't want to have those conversations. I want to have a conversation about where your child is right now. And if you're interested in moving your child forward, we could talk about how we can make things better without looking at level four. And even though you find yourself doing all this, you still have to report grades within your district, right? Yes, I do. I have to report a grade. Um, and what what I found is over the last, I started doing that, um, that long report uh, this year. And um, I found that parents have loved it. They've absolutely loved it. And all they get on my report card is a letter grade. And so there's no comments, nothing on the report card anymore. It's just a letter grade. And then the child gets the long form sent home with them. And I find that, that I'm having more conversations with parents um, through email, phone calls about that report than I am about the letter grade anymore. I have not had a parent call and complain to me. Why is, why is my Billy getting a B plus and not an A, a or whatever it is. Um, they're calling me and saying, Hey, um, you know, I noticed that you, that in the, um, one of your challenges for, for my son, um, you said that he could develop his leadership skills. Um, he's involved in this, this, and this. What are you seeing in class? Because I would like to help him out with that. So I'm, I enjoy those conversations and, and those I think are more, much more meaningful than, you know, what can I do to get my child from uh, A minus to an A? Um, it, 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 those just don't make sense to me, those conversations. But the conversations about how do I make my child um, a better human being are, are so rich and so so rewarding. Of course, we have to still deal with the ramifications that grades have on our schools as well. Let's take a second and talk about the article you wrote recently called Redefining Quality, Working Toward New Measures of School Achievement, where you talk about the effect that school grading has on the surrounding community. Well, the school report card emphasizes test scores, which is cool. And if you look at my article, I put a screenshot of Washington State's overall report card. And you go to any school district report card. When a state emphasizes test scores, um, such as Washington does, you'll notice on that screenshot that 50% of the page is directed towards the results of the test scores. And um, the bottom right-hand corner, it kind of hidden away under other measures, is four-year graduation, five-year graduation rate, and attendance. I don't know why graduation rate is, is clumped with attendance, who gives a crap about attendance? But um, graduation rate should be should have much more pre preferential treatment to it than the test scores. Isn't part of what our goals in high school is to get kids to graduate? But more than graduate, there are so many cool things going on in schools that just are not reported in state test scores. And um, when we only publish state test scores we are being reductive in what is possible in a school. Um, we know that through 
you know, years and years and years of research that the number one indicator of the success of the school on state test scores is the socioeconomic status of the community that surrounds the school. So when we report test scores as the number one indicator of the quality of a school, then we're automatically disadvantaging po students of poverty, students of color. I mean, we are um, perpetrating institutionalized racism as we continue to report um, state test scores. And we're, we're going to continue to give preferential treatment to the white affluent neighborhoods. So, of course, you know, parents who are white and affluent are going to back up the state test scores because it is going to give their children higher preferential treatment with the schools. But the sad thing is, is um, what are their schools really doing to prepare their kids for beyond? Are they just doing a really good job preparing them for the test so that they could take this test? Or are we really preparing kids for life? You know, a lot of the things I, I listed off in my article, some of the wonderful things that my school does. We have uh, um, two Washington, uh, sorry, Washington State Regional Teachers of the Year. We, and this is in the past um, six years that, that these teachers have been recognized. Um, and then we have, um, we have a culinary program that has won several state and has gone to nationals. We have um, a, a FFA program that has won several states and gone to nationals multiple times. And we've had um, we have an art program that um, that that uh, he he uses his pottery class and the kids make bowls and he sells the bowls for charity. I mean, these are wonderful things, and these are not put into a school's report card. And when I if I saw those things listed on the school's report card, I go man, I want my kid to go there. But when I look at my school's report card, we are rated as a four out of 10. And it, it makes me sad that our quality is not even on the top half because our, our test scores, and we have a large um, community of, we're a very rural school, and um, we have a large community of poverty students. And we're automatically saying our school is not high quality because our test scores are not there. And to me, I just find that very sad. And I think that when we show that to parents, when we show that to community members, if we put it into their face that, look, um, you're automatically disadvantaging schools. And the, uh, um, and when we flip that over, if we stop de-emphasizing test scores and we start expecting schools to begin to report how is the school connecting with the community and what impact are you making in the community in your school then we're going we're going to have to start redefining and uh, and challenging ourselves as administrators and teachers to what we're doing in the classrooms um, i'm no longer going to be doing some direct instruction that's telling my kids how to answer the the correct um bubbling answer on on a question on the state test. Instead, I'm challenging my kids to publish their writing to a blog spot so that they can impact our community or we're, we're doing some community activists to reduce, um, to reduce, uh, uh, you know, drug dealing in our community or we're dealing with how do we, you know, how do we increase the salmon population 
uh, in our rivers because salmon population are on a decline. So we're beginning to look at those and reach out to the community and work with the community to solve problems. And when we, when we get to report those things, our school is going to be much better than they were than just, hey, we did a great job on this test. So I'm curious then, is there a question that you believe that state standardized report cards should be addressing? I think that when we begin to quantify learning, we begin to reduce it to, I mean, it dehumanizes, period. And I think what we need to do is start asking, not instead of asking the question, what do we begin to quantify? Um, but rather, what do we get, how are we going to begin to qualify this? How, how do kids get to report uh, what they've learned in the process throughout the four years of high school or their 13 years of education? How do kids get to reflect upon that and say, here's what I've learned in my 13 years of school, and I'm so glad that I went through my schools, um, and here's where I'm going to go with this information. And then what we can do is, and this is hard to do, is we check in with them four, five, ten years after graduation and see where they are. And are kids, because of what they've learned in school, are they now people who are shaping their community? Are they shaping their their, their jobs? Are they um, people who are influencers and creative? And um, yeah, I think those are the questions we have to ask, but it's it's that's the, that's the hard work. Um, it's much easier to throw a piece of paper in front of, you know, 1600 kids, um, and then pull the results in and have a machine run it and report the results by the end of the year. But those reports uh, of a state test don't tell us where the kids are going to be 10, 15, 20 years from now. And I think those are the questions that we need to ask. We need to be asking uh, a lot and, uh, hey, how did how did your high school program help prepare you for college? Um, or how did your high school program help prepare you for um, the career that you were in involved? Uh, or how did your high school program just help you to be a better person? Um, and I really think that's the question that we need to ask um, is, how did school make you a better person? And that's not quantifiable. And what final thoughts do you have surrounding your practice and gradeless ed? A couple of years after I first started teaching, RateMyTeacher.com came out. And I remember thinking, this is cool. I can get feedback from my kids and from their parents, and people can see this around the world, what I'm doing. And I can learn from what I'm doing bad and what I'm doing good. And I remember teachers being up in arms. Hey, we can't have this. Um, what if I get a kid that hates me? And I think what it comes down to really why teachers fear the um, students reporting of the teachers is because I really think that we, if we really think about it, we know we're failing our kids. We know that we're not serving their social emotional needs. We know that we're really not preparing them for life. We are, uh, because nowhere in the real world do we sit in a desk in isolation, not work with somebody next to us, take a test every week. Um, we don't have six different bosses telling us what to do, six different rules. Um, we're working collaboratively. We're working, um, you know, it, it, most jobs, we're, we're solving real-world problems and um, working with people to do that. And I really do think that if, if, if you ask a teacher, hey, how does what you're doing prepare kids for real life? 
if they're being honest, they're going to say it's not. Um, and I think that's part of the fear of um, having people report on us. But I think that if we move away from um, from a test data driven school to a more holistic and problem based or project based uh, outreach where we're working with our communities, then kids are going to be more satisfied with their learning. Kids are going to be more satisfied with uh, who they are and their teachers because they'll look at their teachers as somebody who worked with them rather than worked at or did to them. And nobody wants somebody to do to them. They want somebody to do with them in life. I know like with my principal, my principal's phenomenal. And he comes into my classroom quite often. And um, he'll just ask me questions. He'll give me some suggestions. He'll tell me what he likes that I'm doing. He'll point out things that he doesn't like. But it's not, um, it's, a, it's a relationship that we have. And it's a, built on trust. And it's built on how do we get kids to learn better? Um, rather than, hey, you're not filling in these check boxes. And at the end of the year, we're going to do our evaluation and I'm going to grade you down for everything that you got wrong. It's more of, hey, how can I make Aaron Blackwater a better teacher? And I, I trust my principal and I look at him. Uh, I, I don't fear him walking in my door. I, I'm excited when he walks in my door because I think, hey, I have another opportunity to have a conversation about what's going on in my classroom. And I think that's the same thing that kids need. They need to look at us when we're walking by their desk. Hey, this is an opportunity for me to share what I'm doing with my teacher and get some feedback so I can become a better writer, a better scientist, a better thinker, rather than, uh-oh, I hope my teacher doesn't see me off task playing on my phone, or, oh, boy, I hope my teacher doesn't see that I've made this mistake here. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I think that those are the relationships we need to build. I hope you're enjoying the podcast thus far. I sincerely appreciate you listening in. And if you enjoy this work, head on over to humanrestorationproject.org to find a ton of free resources and a wealth of writings. And then, if you think we should keep going, take a gander at our Patreon page. For a dollar a month, you'll receive a professional, print-ready electronic magazine of our works every two months. But as always, all of our work is available free online. The best practices shouldn't be gatekept. So we're here as a resource to support Progressive Ed for everyone. Thank you. And finally, Nick Covington, who is both one of our earliest supporters and a social studies instructor at Ankeny High School in Ankeny, Iowa, who promotes the use of portfolio-based learning as well as other progressive practices on his social media as well as his blog. Kind of had a, a strange journey into education, you know, graduated uh, into the Great Recession, had tons of odd jobs, worked at a cemetery, worked for the census, worked as a substitute teacher for two years, and then landed in, in Ankeny, which is the school that I graduated high school from, and kind of fell into a social studies position from there. So yeah, here I am seven years later, I think, and, uh, and, and teaching social studies. What was your journey like into progressive ed? Getting into progressive education and was seeing um, how the system cultivates accumulation, uh, whether it's like through points or through, uh, you know, exit tickets and those kinds of things over like the messiness of, of actual thinking, you know, and then we don't, we don't really help students develop uh, tools to even think about their thinking or evaluate their learning. Um, and for me, the, the big wake up call was, 
I think maybe five years ago now we um, and we had a we had a pretty you know PLC culture is a pretty strong thing in in our district so I, I was kind of tired of giving these cumulative finals and so I said I was like I'm gonna give a portfolio for a final and just kind of see did some research on that and kind of see what happened but it but it was it was a kind of an interesting failure for the first semester because I didn't change anything about the ways that I was teaching it was just okay, well then let's compile this all at the end and kind of see how this connects back to standards. And so kids were, were putting in their like summative assessments, they're putting quiz scores in there. And so we'd get to the end and, uh, you know, and have these conversations say, okay, how, does, how, does, how, how can you show that you learned the role of individuals and groups as promoters of change in the status quo? And they'd pull out a quiz score and I'd say, well, how does this show that you learned anything? And they'd say, well, I got a 90%. And I would say, okay, so so what did you learn about individuals and groups to show that you got a 90%? And they would say, I don't know, but I got a 90%, so I must have learned it. And so it was like this circular thing, you know, and kids were just trapped in this language of like points and grades. And so I, I really did realize that we need to switch. And if we're going to give them a language to be able to communicate learning separate from points and grades, we need to start using different you know, ways of communicating those things too. So we, we kind of act in school like if we just cover the accountability parts and, and try and keep students accountable that, you know, then maybe they'll just figure it out at the end. But like really I think what it does is just create kids who haven't had a chance to think about their learning in a, in a meaningful way and then they just get to the end and, and there's no time to reflect. They just have a GPA to, to show for it. But the, the consequences are vast. You know, there's the, the, the kids are more risk averse. Um, they're extrinsically motivated almost exclusively. Um, they don't really feel like a shared sense of co collaboration or obligation to anybody else because, you know, at the end of the day, what goes in the grade book isn't what what reflects your um, effort or your values or, you know, and, and I'm pointing around the room here that the, the collective or group work, it's just, what did, what did I do? How can I accumulate more of those things? Um, and so they, they, they leave school just with a lack of curiosity of, you know, of purpose or direction and they, they can't ask and answer meaningful questions about, about their place in the world. And, and literally all, all that, stuff that I described started with just a switch to portfolio conversations that failed terribly, you know, my second year of teaching and then realizing I was going to have to backfill all of these other, I think my lights turned off, backfill all of these other um, uh, skills and, and abilities to be able to have these conversations. Like you can't just go into this in the final and expect that they're going to do well. You have to model it, you have to practice it, you have to build it into the structures of, of your day. And that has just taken me down a rabbit hole of you know every other sort of thing related to those kinds of ideas. It started with portfolios. And what are the goals when it comes to using these practices? What's the point of using a portfolio and diving into gradeless learning? In thinking about like those goals of using progressive practice, uh, I, I mean, I can get to more specific things, but here's the, the the thing that keeps me up all night, and I tell my kids this almost every single day too, is at commencement on May 25th, when I'm sitting there in the in the audience and they're walking across the stage and and like I'm I'm sitting there applauding them, and then they hit the other side of the stage, what then? You know, there's there's not going to be uh, someone there to you know hold you accountable with uh, bells and all the 
you know, the intense learning structures that we built up around this. You're not going to necessarily have the instant feedback of something like a grade book or all those other accountability layers that we have. So, like, I just ask them, okay, so, so what are you going to do then? So, so why should I do those things in my practice now if, that, if that's not really supporting you for a world without those kinds of things? So, so what replaces it if you're going to have to be intrinsically motivated? What, what replaces, um, you know, me asking questions or teacher-led questions when there's no teacher to lead those questions? And sure, some kids are going to have, uh, they're going to go on to have other educational experiences, but they're going to look very different from the ones, you know, that are in school. I think about my own college experience or even, you know, beyond that um, in, 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 in adult learning environments, and they don't necessarily look like traditional classroom practices. They look more like reflective conversations, and they look like um, ungraded, um, uh, you know, ungraded writings that just kind of ask you to grow and think and reflect as a professional practitioner. Or, um, you know, I, I haven't taken a multiple choice test in in 10 years uh, because, you know, there's a part of the world that, that doesn't necessarily value those things. So, you know, if the, if the entire experience of school is focused on molding a particular type of student, but the world values things that are different than being successful in school, um, but we, we send kids on a very specific path uh, of success there, um, what are they going to do with the rest of their life outside of school? Um, uh, and so, yeah, I think we just have to strive to make learning environments more authentic in, in that world and to, to understand through experiences rather than through, uh, through rote learning and, and some of the ways that maybe, maybe we learned when we were in high school. I, thought a little bit about something that I'm trying to do in my in my own experience here and, and trying to apply in my own context which is you know which is the concept of assessment as learning and and I, I've, I've learned about it through you know Twitter and talking to people through Twitter but like that seems to be like the the, the key here in, in terms of understanding like learning as a process you know instead of learning as uh, uh, learning as assessment, assessment as learning. Literally, it, it turns the whole thing on its head. Um, and 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 uh, here's a quick anecdote, just for, just from an econ class. So even in even in cases where students don't have a whole lot of choice over uh, over content. So say we're learning about economic systems, and and to scaffold that, you know, loosely, it's we're we're building a a quick little organizer. But I I'll leave a blank space in there and just say, okay, draw, draw a symbol, draw a cartoon, draw a diagram, draw something that to you you know, represents in their brain economic systems. This experience that I had with a student the other day was, you know, I haven't graded anything in the entire semester in the sense of like putting points in a grade book. Uh, but this student said, like, if I just draw a coconut for the traditional economy, would you accept that? And I, I was like, well, what do you even mean? Will I accept that? So, so I, like my mind went in a million different directions and, and I was just like, well, what does the coconut mean to you, you know? And he says, the coconut shows how in a traditional economy they would just barter for goods uh, uh, like coconuts instead of using money. And in my head I was just, yep, you get it, you know. So there, there wasn't a need for like an additional testing or assessment or anything else. It, it's like that fluid ongoing process. It's that, it's that uh, the, like the Frank Smith idea from his forgetting and learning, that classical view, you know, learning is effortless when it happens as a result of being in a being in a community of learners who are doing the same thing together. So I want to make my classroom environment more like that, even if we have, you know, some traditional structures, because I still have to, you know, talk about economic systems and, and PPCs and some of those things in economics class, but, but how can we build that assessment as learning part to just make it a fluid part of what we do, you know, and not a series of tests that you study for and forget. 
One thing I really want to point out is your economics evidence journal. Could you go into more details about what this is? I mean, the evidence journal, as it is, as it's designed to do, the evidence journal is, um, you know, it, it provides just clear language and clear paths to get to, uh, to get to, you know, whatever we define as proficiency. You know, if if we want kids to understand and can provide examples of wants and needs of goods and services, I don't care if they want to talk to me about that. I don't care if they want to plug it, you know, if they want to write it down on a sheet of paper or type it up on a Google Doc and uh, uh, and have that as evidence or have some activity that we did plugged in there, you know, for um, for the factors of production, we did an activity where we, we, we did a virtual tour of the Chamber of Commerce through Ankeny and I had them, you know, I was like, hey, visit three businesses virtually and then just break out their factors of production, land, labor, and capital. So so if, if you're a kid who wants to rely on that as an artifact of evidence, then, you know, pull that up as we go through this, but, but the checkpoints basically are, okay, we might do some learning around here or you might just need to be in charge of finding out some of those objectives and, and meeting those. And whenever you get to that point, um, I have some quizzes in there just so that way they can uh, they can self-reflect and say, okay, if you if you really get it, maybe you should get this score on the quiz, and if not, maybe go back. Um, and I put that on like the quizzes. Have you ever used quizzes before? Yeah, yeah. So, so that's great because they just have the number on there, and they can go through and do that. And then they they just do some some conference prep work work for me to say like, okay, what are one of the one or two of the biggest takeaways of uh, of that learning for you? What are connections that you made to the material? So, for example, I had a student today talking about how when she goes to the store and has to make decisions about name brand versus store brand stuff, that's a trade off that she's going to have to make them perfect. You get it, right? So it's it's all about getting it, and I'm not going to put. I'm not going to put anything in the gradebook that reflects less than you getting it. You know, the only thing I'm going to put in there is an, is an incomplete to show that you don't get it yet. Um, and the other question there is show the depth of your understanding by answering the essential question, and that kind of just differs to based on the, you know, and I'll, I'll use units loosely because we don't really have units because we're, we're assessing as the kids are ready to assess. You know, the, I'll, I'll be doing some instruction. The econ content is more like on, on my pace of delivery compared to the other content of the classes. But, you know, if you can um, provide some evidence or talk me through this, you have this all through at your disposal here. You can load it with artifacts. You can put papers in here. You can type up responses. But the, the big checkpoint is just a conference with me. So it's just a narrative conference. You know, it takes two, three, four minutes. Um, and it's just, okay, so I just start with, you know how would you how would you rate your learning and that's that smiley face thing so it's like if they're super stoked about it then it's okay what what why were you so excited about scarcity or or if they hated it like i want to know that too why did you hate this unit you completed the learning for it what did you hate about it um, and then just start talking them through okay what are takeaways you know uh, answer that how did you answer that question how can we use economic thinking to help our everyday decision making so it's everything that you know we just talked about at the at you know 20 minutes ago, which was about how do we give kids language to communicate learning is by communicating using the language of learning. You know, giving them the objectives. I don't ever talk about points or or grades. It's all in reference to you know those objectives and 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 just semester long things that we'll do. Like we we did that the PBL project, like the economic engagement project. Um, and there's checkpoints in their journal for that too. So where are they at in there? Um, have they completed the research agreement and conference with me about that? Okay, cool. Well, then you're good to go. So that way, you know, we have, and, and I, I show them a video like from the, uh, from from one of the talk shows back in the 60s of some guy doing some plate spinning and we talk about how we're always spinning these plates and so what plate are we spinning today? Um, you know, we might be we might be 
tending to some econ content today. So that's what we're going to be going. Or you get to make some choices about um, are you going to do the EverFi financial literacy online learning piece, that which is due by the end of the semester? Are you going to tend to your economic engagement project, which is due by the end of the semester? And, and like that just frees up me from basically minimum instruction so that way I can just be with kids all class. That was today. And I, I love those days because I'm just, I'm just talking with kids about, hey, what do you, what do you got? What do you need help with? You know, I'm initialing in here so it shows their progress and their growth as they're going through it. And the goal is just to have a completed booklet, you know, a packet of, of showing all their learning and all the objectives. So that way it makes that, that con when I go to con parent-teacher conferences on Thursday, and, and we're not talking about, you know, uh, how can my kid go from a 90 to a 92, or right, how can my kid keep the D minus? It's, oh, here's all the stuff your kid has done, right? Here's, here's how they've shown that learning. And I'm not putting a grade in the grade book until they can show their learning. And, and that was part of the process today, too, was just, okay, we've done some learning, so what does that look like now here at six weeks? We have these big 18-week goals, but are you meeting now? Are you in progress? Do you not have any evidence? How can we move you from having evidence to, to all that stuff? It's, it, I love it because it's, I call it the no surprises you know, uh, econ agenda. You know all the stuff that you have to do in advance, right? So, so how are you going to get there? How are you going to show it? Are you going to talk to me about it? Do you need to, some people, some kids build a Google slide, you know, and they, they have every single slide has the objective on it and they have the evidence in there. Perfect. Some kid just wrote on here, show the depth of your understanding by answering the essential question. He wrote words. And I was like, what does, what does words mean? He's like, well, I'm going to talk to you about it. I was like, okay, we'll go, right? Talk to me about how you can do those things. So, you know, it's just, it's, it's again, going back to that classical model just of, of building, you know, a classroom culture that's focused on, on the learning and not the artificial things that, that like, uh, preclude real learning, right? And that might be a controversial, you know, thing to say just generally, but like all the crap that we put in place of, of just talking to kids about what they're learning, like gets in the way of getting learning done. You know, um, and and then just having this awesome artifact at the end to say, okay, this represents the six weeks of of work that you've done in econ class. Um, it's just such a cool thing. So so the final then at the end. So <laughs> let's come full circle and talk about portfolios. So we complete one of these things for the first six weeks. We've kind of got a year long one for some of the year long goals. We've got a second and third six weeks because those are our those are our big chunks. So then by the end, we just mash those suckers together and then, and then just have some reflection questions, you know, to ask them, you know, how do you think the semester went? What do you think you understand the most? What could you teach to somebody else? Like if you went to, you know, the middle school right now and had to teach a lesson on economics, what would you, what would you teach to them? What can you, what can you walk away from here and changing your, you know, changing the way that you look at the world? How does what you've learned in this class connect to other learning inside or outside of class? Um, how has your learning this semester changed your view of economics? And even, you know, then some personal questions that I'll ask them at the end, like, okay, so what's next? You know, I, this is the last time I'm going to get to talk to you um, in this the final narrative conference. I'm just out in the hallway talking to kids um, for four or five days, and it's awesome. You know, end with a fist bump or a high five or something, and say, hey, you did it, great job. Um, so so glad for for the thing that's that's coming up next. And you know, none of the baggage of redos and retakes and grade grubbing and all that stuff you know it's a focused conversation on how are you how are you doing how are you doing on the learning you know how are you doing on your goals how are you doing on my goals sometimes but I mean that was a long way to get to that question but it kind of seemed like it came full circle you know for me with just putting this this journal together in the grand scheme of things too 
is it awkward to have all of these progressive techniques, let alone at a traditional school, but at the school that you yourself went to? I mean, just the relationship factor there of coming into a school that you were a student at. I mean, I feel awkward um, with the things that I might say or the things that I might share um, and how my coworkers might see that. What has that experience been like with your peers when you're pushing all these boundaries? I had the exact same. I didn't invite my. So honestly, I was a little bit anxious about about that part of it. Like the the idea of the narrative conference is like way different than than what a lot of. I, I've been doing portfolios for five years, and nobody else like around me has has even dipped a toe in that. So I'm always the weirdo out in the hallway talking to kids, and you know people are closing their doors because because they're taking a test or something. You know, and I, and I guess whatever, do do your thing. But but it was so interesting because. You know, it, it it and it's not just about the learning, but the relationships that I have with kids are from first semester are so much stronger than any relationships that I've ever had because you don't end with that single stressful moment of you know oh I I'm stressed and anxious. The last time you see this kid is when they're at their most stressed and anxious, and when like their grade is on the line to pass this final. It's just like hey, let's just celebrate and talk about what's what's next for you here because you know this is this is the last time we're we're going to get to do these things. So I was out in the hallway. We're kind of by a stairwell that goes to our second floor and 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 our, our main our, our head principal was walking by and walking up the stairs um, and and I was just talking to a student and, and we were just kind of going through that list right so talking about what it is that they learned or talking about the next steps for them and you know I was just asking him questions and and he stops and he kind of walks a few steps back and he just has a big smile on his face and he's like he's like oh I, I had heard that 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 this is what you were doing but it's just so great to actually hear you doing this, and I love what you're doing. And he gave he gave me a fist bump, and he gave the student a fist bump on here too, and then just like stuck around for a few more seconds, and then and then walked back upstairs. So you know, I I think people are afraid, like oh, if I don't have a score to show other kids know something, but you know, they they the the, the thing <laughs> the thing is, then you don't even it, you're too scared to try something new, um, and and you don't even know what the rewards could be reaped for those kinds of things, you know, and and thinking that administrators wouldn't support that, but here I am in the hallway under the stairs talking talking to kids about, you know, their internships or their their college choices or something else, and admins smiling and and walking around giving fist bumps. So I think it, I think it works out. You're super active on Twitter too. You know, you're incredibly involved in posting your thoughts and sharing ideas. What are you finding on social media that you might not find in the quote unquote physical world, if you will? Back when I was kind of making this this transition, I was on more of like, you know, an instructional leadership team. I've been on a PBIS team. I've been on the standards-based grading team and all those things. And 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 I thought maybe those would be the vehicles to to be able to do that kind of work, but I found that like those are just those are just vehicles to like systematize, you know, more of the more of the doing school part of those kinds of things. So like over over the last two years, I've really just dropped out of you know the the, the instructional leadership stratum, I guess, of of colleagues. But you know, it, and then in continuing the Twitter work, that actually has led you know into a lot of great conversations. Like maybe you've seen between.